I think a pension scheme is really proud these days that it's now got somewhere into the sort of 20% range, you know, 25, 26% open statements is a number that pension schemes can be really proud of because it's been languishing around the 12 and 13% mark um, for so long. I've been wanting to get Michelle on this podcast for blooming ages because Michelle and I chat about all sorts of stuff and put the world to right. And I'm really, really looking forward to chatting. So thanks very much for joining us, Michelle. You're a very well-known character, almost infamous, I'd say, but you've had a really interesting career, right? From your original broker consultant, I looked on your your profile. It's obviously your CEO role at the Pensions Advisory Service. I know you were exceptionally passionate about what that could do for consumers. And I want to come back to that if I can. And I know you now hold a number of really interesting non-exec roles with some of the largest UK or well, global brands in the sort of savings and investment and actually then deploying your expertise in some other really interesting areas too. So I'm sure this is going to be a really interesting session. The timing of this is really good, actually, in the context of I had a, a chat in the last few days, actually, with uh, Alan Morahan at uh, Punter Southall, because obviously they've been championing for some time and now seeing you know, the market recognise Pension Tracing Day. And I think that's quite pertinent in the context of the chats and the uh, things we've had before, and I guess your career. The thing I picked up from that, which I'm hoping is going to lead into some interesting discussions, was that when TPAS was replaced, and I think the government replaced three of the other sort of sponsored financial guidance initiatives, didn't they? Money Advice Service, TPAS, and Pension Wise, that seems to me sort of quite representative of sort of confusion really and the lack of consistency in the market and I think this is one of the things that I was quite keen to chat about in terms of the importance around that sort of pension planning and keeping consumers advised and understanding their pots. And I wonder if you wanted to sort of talk about that part of your life really how that evolved and what the role of that piece was and I know your passions in the context of that that sort of theme to start off with if that's okay. Yes and pension ministers come and go uh, which is obviously very pertinent to say this week and it was one particular pension minister who sort of said, oh, I don't know why we have, you know, debt advice separate from pensions advice, because surely you talk about the same things. And and he was absolutely right. And the response back to him was, yes, but we have got workarounds. And so I had a relationship with um, the late Caroline Brooks and Money Advice Service. So they passed all of their pension calls to us. So we had actually worked it round um, to help the customer. But the idea was, wouldn't it be better if there was sort of one you know, national money service that people would know where to go to? Um, and that was um, the genesis of bringing those three bodies that you talk about together. It's really difficult to get people to come and talk to those organisations. And at TPAS, we certainly found it was quite late on in the day or somebody had recommended them. And it was the work that we did actually with the industry um, that drove a lot of people to the pensions advisory service. And I would say both to providers and advisors, it's a really good staging ground to get people to start thinking about the questions that they need to ask. And so there should be much more working together. And I still believe that to this day, that Money Helper, which is the brand that is used for contacting either pensions or um, just general help, it should be worked in collaboration with the industry because we'd all benefit if customers felt the courage to ask questions. They have a really ancient mobile phone that you probably look at across across the table thinking, really, what year did she get that from? Um, is that, you know, I don't have the courage to ask the questions, you know, and I don't have the interest and I don't know the tariffs, etc. And it's exactly the same with financial services. If people have a little bit of courage to challenge, then they're more likely to come and 
and engage with financial services. Through your experience there, and obviously you were doing a lot of maths, weren't you, really? So do you think people understood what pensions even were? Do you think they had an understanding of the money being theirs? I know this is one of the things you mentioned before. There was, a, there was a sort of, almost a bit of a disconnect, wasn't there? Yeah, I mean, pensions is, you know, and I've had a career in pensions, but it's the biggest failure that such a fantastic product has mm. not been, you know, is, is not loved by by the millions. And, and people don't, you know, don't love their pension. And, you know, I listen into contact centres for the pension fund that I'm involved with. And if you ask people, or oh, could I have your contact address, they give their work email, which is absolutely crazy. I mean, you wouldn't do that with any other of your money. So there is, uh, you know, it is not a loved product. It is complicated and it's never not going to be complicated because it lasts over such a long period of time. And therefore there will always be changes, either commercial changes or regulation changes happening to it. Did did people leave um, pensions advisory service knowing pensions? No. You know, we were not there to make people pensions experts or even to answer their questions because we weren't giving advice. What we were there to do was just to help them think through their lives and the things that were relevant to them. And I feel really passionately about this because once again, the FCA are talking about the guidance advice boundary. And I know loads of people are saying that it's something we really worry about. You know, providers really worry about how far can we go. And I think that's even more pertinent with consumer duty. You know, how far can we help people without straying into advice? And my response back to that is, first of all, a lot further than you're going at the moment. Yeah. yeah. And, and secondly, is that actually just if you put yourself in the shoes of your friends and how little they know about financial services, just giving them the right questions to ask or navigating the really complicated world that we all reside in in financial services is a massive boost for people. Um, and will, in your words, will make people more engaged, but will also, you know, help us make sure that people get into the right product because they'll be asking the right questions. Yeah. And that leads really nicely into one of the topics we keep coming back to. And I know, as I say, right from the word go, as far as I can remember talking to you about this, you know, your, your focus is around the consumer's wants rather than needs. I mean, obviously, the industry focuses, I think, on the needs is the way you'd put it. And I get that because of the pension accumulation piece, but people attention is elsewhere and you know certainly in the context of technology do you think the industry's failing to actually sort of engage in the right way with customers at the moment it seems to be a problem that's just persisted doesn't it yeah and it's such a shame because so much money is spent and i think the industry is really well leaning in wanting to do the right thing but engaging with financial services is a bit like speed dating you know, they just like zoom you into, you know, you need a retirement tool and sort of suck you into that. Whereas actually most people say, actually, I just want to sort out my mortgage or sort out my mother who needs to sell her house or I've just got divorced and I just need to get my head together around that before um, I even think about retirement. And I know that retirement's tomorrow and I know I should have done it before, but please don't lecture me about it. But just give me some of the things that, you know, would help me and right now in the things that I want. And I think that would sort of stand for much longer term engagement. And, and you know, pushing it back to you, because I know it's an area that you're involved with. I know, and then loads of people know that they have to keep their data safe. But, you know, my heart sinks when I try and communicate with the provider 
And then they send me another different type of system where we can securely exchange documents. And mm. and some of those systems are so complicated. And all I want to do is just get it done. Yeah, yeah, no, I agree. And obviously, we're, we're better champion that theme. But there is progress being made, I think. You know, certainly things are happening in the right direction. Just, just on that sort of technologies front and platforms, have you seen very much evolution around that sort of engagement piece? Because as I say, on balance, people are sadly not they, they, they revisit their pensions infrequently, don't they? And, and the point is, like you say, it can be such a fundamental part. I remember, I remember some many, many years ago, someone saying to me that contributing to your pension, I think a year early or something in your very early days can have such an extraordinary impact. And then, and again, they're the maths, so it makes sense. And I remember repeating that to my kids, and fortunately, they followed followed uh, suit. Or I guess they've been compelled to because of auto enrollment. But you, you said something there about data as well, because in talking to Alan Morahan again, the, just the sheer number of pots that are lost. And again, he referenced the fact that I, I think we talked about at the time, but you pointed out the fact that people are still using their company email addresses at the point of reference. You know, it just feels like that problem still seems to rumble forward. And with dashboard, I know there's there's efforts and lots of you know money being spent to try and address it but it still gets delayed and delayed what's your feeling about whether that whole landscape is going to actually ultimately give something to a consumer where they can go where they can get you know a bit of more help as it were i think i mean first of all if we just sort of talk about the pension dashboard i mean i have a couple of worries about the pension dashboard and those worries are firstly is I don't have any friends who talk about the pension dashboard except for people in financial services. So where is the marketing going to happen? And this goes back to, you know, how do we get you know people interested enough to say, oh, I need to go and find something from that employment. Most people have convinced themselves they don't have anything, you know, from the, their yeah. employment in the 90s. So so where's that impetus and going to happen that people will actually look? It's fine if you've got an advisor, but those people don't need the pension dashboard. I mean, we're talking about all the millions of people who don't have access to financial advice. And the second thing that worries me about it, and this goes back to the needs and wants, is that um, all along the pension dashboard has had lots of really clever people talking about all the things and all the information that we need on the dashboard. And as a result of that, there is going to have to be some quite stringent security around it. And then that becomes a vicious circle because if it's stringent logins and you can think about this with logins that you do with gov.uk, it's a really long process because you go in, you give your details, they then say they'll send you a code in seven days, et cetera, et cetera, just to make it really, really secure. And as a result of that, people will lose interest. And so that's my sort of second worry about it. And I come back to the fact that if there was a really simple dashboard that lots Lots of people could get onto really quickly. Um, and it was really simple. And it just said to you, you know, there's a chance because there's somebody that looks awfully like you. It might not be you, but looks awfully like you. That's got a pot in with standard life. I'd say, oh, whoa, <laughs> this yeah, is like yeah. the library. And I'd yeah. be on the phone or I'd be emailing or I'd be logging on to standard life to say, is it me? Is it me? Have I won? <laughs> is it my pot? And, and I just, and, and if that had been done, you know, all of the other sort of clever stuff about then accessing the data, et cetera, could follow. But we could have started this many, many years ago. And as every year goes by, we still have people logging on to their pensions with their office email address, you know, 
know, because that is the way it happens through automatic enrolment. The problem isn't getting any smaller and we still haven't got a pension dashboard. So there are a couple of things that sort of worry me about the, the pension dashboard. And I think we need to be thinking sort of much more smartly about, you know, finding solutions, finding engagement and getting people to really think that it's their money um, if the pension dashboard, whenever it will come about, has any chance of success. I think you cited some stats. It'd be great to get those out of your head in a second if we can. I mean, in first-hand sort of conversations with some very large schemes that are suffering with this sort of engagement issue, some of the stats around those that bother to access their statements are just horrific. I would suggest they should be counted as lost because people just simply haven't looked. But I know, I know, I know you, had, you had some experience yeah. with that. Didn't you? I mean, I think a pension scheme is really proud these days that it's now got somewhere into the sort of 20% range, you know, 25, 26% yeah. open statements is a number that pension schemes can be really proud of because it's been languishing around the 12 and 13% mark um, for so long. I think some of the issues that I see with pension schemes, uh, aside from opening up the annual benefit statement, is that if they open up the annual benefit statement and then think, oh, maybe I should do something or they log on, you have gone for a year without knowing your log on. And so then you probably hit a buffer on that one and, you know, oh, oh God, I've got my login. How do I get in? And not all pension schemes have the mechanisms where that is done quickly. And again, people's interest wavers, wavers hugely. But during the course of the year, you haven't really had a relationship with your pension scheme. And particularly over the last couple of years, when we've had very volatile markets and we've had you know, the really unusual situation where both the equity and the bond market have gone down in the same year. If you're logging onto your pension scheme and seeing something that doesn't look particularly rosy because it's one year in isolation and your fund has gone down despite you contributing into it, it doesn't help with your relationship with your pension either. Whereas if during the course of the year, you've had this sort of continual, oh, you know, oh, it's interesting, my pension scheme talked to me about security, cybersecurity, or my pension fund talks to me about um, divorce, and a friend of mine's getting divorced, or I've got divorced. And you've had that sort of continual, oh, they're really helpful people out there. Then you're more likely to, you know, know what your login is, and also use it as a go-to place if you need help. Help on financial matters. Yeah, so I mean, like you said, the frequency of in- and pertinence of engagement stuff is always there, and we talked about that before. Uh, certainly, when you talk to people anecdotally, people don't seem to necessarily consider pensions as an asset in the way they do with other things, which is quite strange because it's their money, you know, they've contributed, and and partly, you know, the gains they've gained by virtue of investing into sort of tax um, advantageous vehicles, as it were. In terms of that asset, the, you know, the disengaging with their assets and what happens. I know, again, we've talked before; it'd be really good to get your slant on the dormant assets uh, schemes and the the changes. I mean, I, rest of us all, the Queen's speech, her last speech, I think, there was a little tiny addendum in, in the paperwork that followed it up that talked about the expansion of that because of that it's been voluntary. Would, would, you, would you mind, just for the purpose of everybody giving us a quick, you know, with your expertise, it'd be nice just to understand, if you can, what that really means. Yeah, I think it's really interesting because it's been going for quite a few years in the um, bank and building society market. I think it started off, Oh, see, back in 2011, was it? I don't know. But this idea that, you know, little amounts of money or sometimes quite big amounts of monies that people have been completely forgotten about and have been lost could go to better causes. And it was set up by, initially, the cooperative society tried to get all of the banks involved with 
a organization that they set up and started collecting data that if you actually move an asset, a, a, a bank account that hasn't been touched for you know over 10, 15, 20 years, if you give it to us, we will look at the data. Based on that data, the probability of anyone ever accessing that money, and based on that, we'll be able to say from the fund in total, we'll be able to give away part of it because that money will never, ever be reclaimed. But we'll keep the rest of it just in case somebody comes out of the woodwork in many years and your rights never disappear. So if you know you haven't touched it for 20 years and then 20 years later, somehow or other, somebody discovers an old checkbook and gets in contact, it's still your money and you will still have access to it, even if your account has been moved over to the reclaim fund which I now think is part of the Treasury. I think it's been taken over from the co-op and is part of the Treasury. And so in the Queen's speech, as you rightly said, and I think it was around about the time of the pandemic, they said, actually, this should also happen with policies. And that should also, where we've got assets where nobody's touched them for years, we should be able to put them into this reclaim fund. So at least some good comes out of that money without individuals losing their rights. And actually, I suppose, first of all, I think in financial services and in pensions, we have to recognise it as a failure that these are people who have saved long and hard and yet they've got lost. And we have to recognise that as the provider of that vehicle and as the custodian of their money, I mean, maybe not custodian in the legal sense, but in the brand sense, we have to think, well, we did something wrong that we lost a customer. So that, I think, is something we should focus on. But secondly, you know, from a mechanics point of view, it does make a lot of sense because there are pension funds that just can't wind up because they can't find everybody. So we have um, this huge legacy of a problem that we need to sort out. And I hope that actually, if people start thinking about the use of the dormant assets scheme as a way of unlocking accounts which are not helpful for the provider to have, but moving them across to this other vehicle, that we should try and look at minimising the numbers that have to fall into that bucket in the first place. Yeah, I mean, I, I, th- I think the number is at twenty-seven billion or something. It was the latest sort of estimate of funds that are sat there. And I think the industry providers make some pretty serious efforts to repatriate money to to customers, but you, you know. As I say, fundamentally, it is a failing, isn't it? Yeah. And it's not easy because, unfortunately, it also preys upon lethargy and laziness, I guess. So it's without being rude, you know, I know I'm a lazy consumer, you know, just organising my affairs in general terms is not is, is not easy and I'll get all sorts of stuff from all sorts of people. So I can understand how it happens, but nonetheless, it's uh, it's just extraordinary numbers, isn't it? Scary. And, and I guess I would bounce that back to you because you're not a lazy person. And so to <laughs> say you're a lazy consumer in financial services, I think financial services need to say, why have we made somebody not want to do things? Because at the end of the day, this is really exciting stuff. It's money. It's going to you know, help you do the things you want to do in life. And we don't ever seem to have done that. And it sort of circles back to a conversation that we had earlier, is that I sometimes feel there's lots of good thinking in financial services, but sometimes we lean too heavily into the customer. And it's that sort of behavioral dynamic that you know, if you're with somebody and you lean into them, they will lean away. 
Um, yeah. And I think financial services, and it goes back to my sort of you know speed dating, it's that sometimes we lean too heavily into our customer and they go, oh my God, and they just sort of shy away. And that's where I think we need to get smarter. And we also need to have more confidence because we've got some great you know services and, and products that people really need and they will get sold. But we do tend to, the meetings I've sat in throughout the whole of my career have been around, if we do this for somebody or we offer them this service where's where's the product sale in it and I think we need to be a lot more confident about the products and services that we offer to say actually if we do that it's a good thing and out of good things usually good things happen and there's a degree of um, you know, re- reciprocation. And I always think back to um, a client once told me, and he was a non-executive at the McDonald's Academy, which is the education trust set up by the fast food company. And he told me that the fast food company, the year they took profit off their goals for the business and their KPIs was the year that they started seeing a meaningful change in the amount of money that they were making. And and it it sort of goes back to, you know, McDonald's trying to do some good things um, regarding, you know, the number of calories in some of their food and educating people on that, offering different types of product, et cetera. You know, they started thinking along those lines and the money followed. And people will think I'm naive, but I believe we've got really good products that really help people. And if we sort of took our foot off the in always thinking about where's the product sale and just thought, actually, you know, what does that person want? And if I start helping them there, then I can start a relationship. And if I start a relationship, then they'll sort of say to me, oh, by the way, you know, should I be putting more into my pension scheme? And that's far better a conversation than saying, go go into this retirement tool and spend your Sunday putting all this data into your retirement tool. And at the end of it, we're going to tell you that you need to put you know, more contributions in. I mean, that's not a way to form a relationship. And it's also not really realistic, is it? People just don't behave that. I, I, don't, I don't think it's naivety. I just love your passion on this. We, we talk about this all the time. I was making the notes of you were saying that. And this, I've always believed, like you know, the service-led sales piece. If you, yeah, It's almost like pay it back, you know, pay it on type philosophy. And in the context of consumers, I 100% agree with you. It's just you've got to do more than just try and flog a product, which is sort of what consumers' perception of financial services has been, which is a real shame because the products serve an absolutely essential part of living and breathing, you know, and, and, and surviving and, and yeah. buying a home yeah. and having a family and all those things. So, uh, you yeah, which is why I thought this was so interesting. But it, and I guess your pensions experience and where you were was almost like magnifying that uh, that ethic, wasn't it, around the pensions? But he's trying to make sure people understand what they're doing. So it's it, oh, it's fascinating. I always like to, if I can, just finish off with, and I didn't warn you on this one, I, I apologise, but if you could look back on all of your experiences, um, what piece of advice would you give your younger self? Oh, gosh, what would I give the advice to my younger self? <laughs> yeah, I, th- I, think, I think the advice that I would give my younger self is it's a slightly messy one, but I, I, you know, I've been on various courses, lucky enough that my employer sent me on various courses during my lifetime. And at one of those courses, somebody once said to me, you know, you can't change. I think this was sort of a course to become a manager. And they said to me, you can't change people's personality, but you can help them learn behaviors. 
And and I think, you know, whether you're talking about your own management of, of your financial affairs or whether you're talking about it in your career, those words really linger with me in that, you know, I can't change my personality. I can't change the fact that I'm quite... Yeah, I'm quite organised. I don't, funnily enough, enjoy looking after my own financial affairs. And one of my learned behaviours, which perhaps will surprise people, but this comes from somebody who failed their maths eleven plus, is that I um, is that one of my learned behaviours is you know that I have got systems in place of how I organise my finance, and I'm I'm a creature of habit, and I do those uh, religiously, and I found my sort of happy place as far as those are concerned, and certainly I hope I've passed on to to my sons, you know the you know you. I've, I've got two sons with very different personalities and I have very different conversations with them about how they manage their money. But the one thing I can't do is change their personality about it. Yeah. And, and I think it applies whether you're talking to the employees who work for you or whether you talk about it um, relative to yourself or whether you talk about it relative to your clients um, or to your family. And, you know, don't tr- try and change their personality. So if they're a spender, you know, don't try and change that. But you can help them learn behaviours about how much they're spending. For example, you know, one of my sons who's incredibly generous and definitely would fall into the spender category, he's put all sorts of mechanisms in place on his phone where he tracks his spending and it's all very clever and it's all automatic. And and that's a learned behavior because it's not his nature. Yeah. It helps him organize his finance. And so I guess that would be sort of my advice to my younger self is don't try and change me and don't try and change my personality. But, you know, there are things that you can learn to make yourself, you know, more effective, more, you know, achieve the goals that you want to achieve by perhaps learning certain behaviors that are going to prevent you doing silly things because your personality leads you in that direction or just helps you amplify the things that you're good at. Oh, I'm hoping, I'm hoping is that like I always say this, we'll do a montage of snippets of these because they're just brilliant. I mean, just because, because people have led such different lives, different paths through their careers and each of them pick out little nuggets. And each time I've heard one, I'm trying to write, I try and write these things down and remember them because then you can try and apply them yourself. Michelle, yeah. thank you so much for doing the podcast. Really appreciate it. I hope perhaps we can get you back on again sometime for the time being. Many thanks, Michelle Cracknell, for joining our podcast. You're welcome. It's been great talking. Thank you.